This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation. Today I have with me Jeff Hendrickson. Jeff is the founder and CEO of Thorpe Abbott's Capital, which is a behavioral-focused hedge fund focused on exploiting systematic biases in public markets. Jeff, let's start there. Could you maybe give us broad brush definition of what behavioral economics are or what behavioral focused investing is? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, broadly speaking, behavioral economics, you know, kind of came out of a school of thought. In, in my view, the, 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 where I follow is uh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky were kind of four pathbreakers in, in the field and along with others. And uh, David Thelen from Chicago is another, but the idea generally is that uh, human beings, you know, are, we, we are products of evolution and the way that we've evolved to live over the years has, is, has been largely influenced by our evolutionary heritage, which dates back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And it's, you know, that mindset is not necessarily properly adapted for this little bitty sliver that we're living in now. And if you think about like how long we've really been engaged in, in markets, if you will, uh, while it might seem like it dates back a long time, um, you know, going back to Venice and even before then, it's actually a very small fraction of human history. And uh, the way that we've evolved has, has caused us to have certain biases that infect, if you will, kind of the way that we think and make decisions. And, you know, we are, we are optimized essentially to work, uh, you know, to, to work and make decisions in, in a very, you know, almost like a uh, rural 
kind of caveman type of, of way. And it's not necessarily the best way to think and make decisions in buying and selling investments. And so what we try to do is understand those biases as they affect us and what kinds of mistakes it causes markets and investors to make. And one level is like, look, don't fall into these traps and make these mistakes yourself. Another level is like, look, I know where other people make mistakes. Let me try to take advantage of that and be on the right side of the trade and exploit the mistakes of others. And that's kind of the, the approach that we take. So understanding how bias causes investors to make errors in judgment and then being able to step on the other side of that and, and make a profit is, is our focus. And that was really why I was excited to have you on the show. We've had consultants and day trading coaches on to talk about the systems they have in place to take advantage of behavioral economics and what mistakes not to make, right? Don't step into this pothole, loss aversion, et cetera. But you take it a step farther and overlay this investment thesis and algorithmic approach to it to take advantage of those mistakes. So can you, you maybe discuss how behavioral economics and the, the what you just covered interplays with this efficient market thesis that I think a lot of us have heard a lot about in terms of passive income, ETF investing, and how it's become really the majority of the market today? Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of like broadly speaking, you know, I think if you think about what the efficient market hypothesis is, it's, it's this idea that at any one time markets are properly pricing an asset because they are accumulating all the wisdom that exists in the crowd, if you will. And the crowds are wiser than the individuals that they comprise. And therefore, the idea that you or that me or anybody can actually make a better guess than the crowd is, is wrong. And so if markets are efficient, your best bet is just to invest passively. That's kind of the, the efficient market hypothesis in a nutshell. But it really relies on this idea of crowd wisdom, which we talk a lot about. And, and there's a lot of evidence that crowd wisdom exists. If you think about kind of the foundations of proud wisdom, you can go back and look at, I forget the gentleman's name, but there was a, a scientist who's from the UK that did Randy's experiments in the early 20th century, where he would go around to stock shows and ask large crowds of people to guess the weight of a steer. And he would set up a competition and he would allow you to, you know, write your, your guess down on a piece of paper and he'd put it into a, you know, a couple hundred people in the crowd, they put it into a big thing and whoever was closest would win some kind of monetary prize. So there was an incentive for everybody to do their best individually to guess the weight of the steer. And what he found is that when you averaged all these guesses together, like the average was within a pound or two of the actual weight. And so why is that? Well, it's crowd wisdom. Everybody's guess is the right answer plus some error term. And as long as those errors are not correlated or large across a large enough number of people, they should cancel out. And therefore, uh, you kind of have this idea of crowd wisdom that really underlies efficient markets. The problem with that, though, is what it assumes is that all the errors are independent and, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're independent, individually distributed in that, that there's no correlation among the errors themselves. And that basically assumes that we're all rational optimizing machines, essentially. And what you find is if you run the experiment a different way and you interject bias into the crowd through any kind of way, right? Maybe you have an expert that comes on stage and gives a whole speech on why he thinks the thing weighs 1200 pounds, whatever. If those errors become correlated, crowd wisdom can skew out of control and become crowd madness. And so crowd madness essentially is a lot of like-minded people who are all wrong. And so our view is that if you think markets are efficient, you basically believe markets are always operating in this kind of environment where there's no correlated errors. And what we find is that a lot of time that's true. But there are lots of times when it's not true. And so if you're going to be, if your job as an investor is to go out and try to beat the market, 
you know, our view has always been, well, I want to find out what parts of the market have a lot of correlated errors that I can exploit or, or have a higher probability of having higher correlated errors because those are where the mistakes exist. And that's where we can find opportunity. And so I think, you know, behavioral economics, behavioral finance basically tries to understand, you know, what, why it is that crowds can kind of deviate from this crowd wisdom and, and why bias can become systematic in nature. And that's key, right? Because if you're biased and I'm biased, but we're biased in opposite directions, it kind of offsets. It needs to be systematic bias that's affecting the crowd for the crowd to really make mistakes. And so, you know, our approach has been to try to find when crowds make systematic mistakes. And, and that's really been our, our entire approach to investing is understanding kind of the, the true nature of mispricing, what causes it, how to find it, and, and really developing a search strategy to exploit it. So would the, would the logical extension of this be what we saw play out with the meme stock craze over the last that year would, or two? Okay. That would be one, right? I mean, um, you know, you could argue that, uh, you know, pick your meme stock, GameStock, AMC, whatever, that, you know, you had a very powerful narrative that gripped investors during that. And, you know, it was almost this desire for revenge against the man, against hedge funds, against all these things. And we can, you know, logically, does that make sense? Did it logically make sense for GameStop to trade above, I don't know, 10 bucks? No, right? Did not. I mean, anybody that has half a brain that knows how to do valuations knows that that made absolutely no sense. But, you know, you had a, this other element gripping the crowd and all those errors were correlated in the exact same direction. Now, you know, GameStop is, I mean, it's, it's obviously off, well off its highs, but, but it's still, I think, trading at levels that most people, most fundamental investors would call insane. So these, you know, these biases and mistakes can persist for some time, but I, I think that would be actually a great example of how, you know, academics believe that we are literally these rational optimizing machines. And, you know, I think the idea that, and a lot of the times we are. I mean, I'm not saying that, I mean, there are a lot of times when markets are completely efficient and we look at something and we say, actually, the market's getting this right. But when markets get it wrong, they get it wrong in a big way. And it, and it, and it, it could be, you know, across an entire sector. It could be, you know, what led to the, the 08, 09 financial crisis. And it also could be in specific individual names like a GameStop, you know, which in that case got traded well above its intrinsic value, but also companies trade well below their intrinsic value for, for other reasons. And so what you really want to understand in our view is, you know, what's causing the mispricing is it, you know, is it something systematic in nature that, that, that really is reflecting a mistake or is it, you know, something that's not systematic in nature and actually is, is more, you know, akin to something that looks efficient. And so I think kind of making that distinction is really key to, to make wise investment decisions. So how do you, how do you actually structure an investment thesis around this, this concept? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, our, so you, you kind of have to proxy for it, right? I mean, so I, maybe to back up a bit, when I was an MBA student, I took a, a class on behavioral finance. And I remember one of the, the, the comments that a, a student made in the class, uh, you know, the teacher is up there teaching all kind of interesting stuff, you know, Kahneman, Taberski, talking about how when Bayes' theorem is, is, goes wrong and how probabilities don't get updated correctly, all these things. And somebody raised their hand and said, this is fascinating, but what the hell do I do with it? Like, how do right. I, you know, how do right. I, how do I use it? Right. And so we kind of, we sat down and we really thought, okay, I want to understand specifically how bias affects security prices. I want to make, basically bridge that gap. And the way that we look at it is, you know, if you think about like a valuation model for a stock, like a discounted cash flow analysis, you know, in simple terms, 
you, you've got a numerator and a denominator there, right? Your numerator is, is, a me- is a measure of free cash flow and your denominator is some discount rate that you're discounting the cash flow back at. So I think, you know, in terms of like where bias affects security prices, it affects both the numerator and the denominator, if you will, of evaluation, you know, situation. So kind of going with the numerator to start, you know, we, we discount expected future free cash flows. And the key word there is being expected. So there's a theoretical probability distribution around every cash flow estimate you make. And so by hook or by crook, when the market is making a judgment on a stock, it's implying probabilities around cash flow scenarios in the future. And so you have to understand how and why markets might take information and incorrectly update a probability. If markets were perfectly efficient, they would be Bayesian in the sense that they would have some base rate probability, new information, and those probabilities would all update very, you know, correctly, efficiently. But when bias gets involved, there's a, a myriad of ways that this can go wrong, right? People can anchor, you know, the, if a, if a company's had a bad quarter, there's a, and we can talk maybe a little bit later about prospect theory, but loss aversion can affect judgments, all these things that cause that numerator to essentially be off. And then there's the actual discount rate itself, which is supposed to reflect time value of money and risk aversion. And what we find is that risk aversion is not constant across different scenarios. There are certain scenarios where investors might be very risk averse and other scenarios where they might be very uh, or less risk averse or even risk seeking. So understanding how, you know, all of this can affect the price of a stock is not that easy to do. But what we try to do is we try to proxy for it by looking for situations where, and this is where the algorithm comes in that we use, is that we're, you know, we're tracking intrinsic value across an entire group of stocks over time and then, and then tracking essentially market pricing. And then we're looking for big deviations and rapid deviations where price and value are, are basically going in opposite directions very quickly. And what we found is that when, when you have a rapid deviation, not always, but it's more indicative of a mistake being made because typically changes in value, either positive or negative, tend to be, you know, kind of a linear process, right? As new information comes into the market, the market digests it. It decides this company is either worth more or less. And it seems it, it tends to be orderly. Now, when you see a rapid deviation, it's one of two things. It's either, you know, something truly has changed that has made the future prospects for this business either a lot better or a lot worse overnight. And that could happen. I mean, you know, we could, you know, we had the Netflix earnings yesterday or two days ago. Uh, so we could argue, you know, whether or not, you know, this new piece of information is materially altering the future for Netflix. And if you think that it is, then you could argue that the 35% drop of the stock saw yesterday is absolutely efficient. If you think that it's not, you, you would argue that that's an overreaction. And so, you know, re- we find that if you just ignore, if you don't do any fundamental analysis, you just look for situations where you see big rapid deviations between value and price, that as a group, those investments do extraordinarily well. And if you actually then go through and actually do the research to try to determine whether or not it's something that's reflecting systematic bias or whether or not it's actually something that seems to be an efficient market process, you can even do better by, you know, kind of overlaying fundamental analysis on top of that. But define loss aversion and prospect theory before we go any further, because I think it, yeah. it is important. No, no, absolutely. So, so one of the big things that came out of Kahneman and Tversky's work, and if you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow, a fantastic book to read. Uh, Kahneman wrote it. Tversky, uh, I forgot when Tversky passed away, but it's been a while. I think maybe sometime in the 90s. Kahneman wrote this book, basically summarizes the, bu- the bulk of their research. And, and one of the big things that they came up with was this idea of prospect theory. And, you know, I guess to kind of start, I mean, the general belief prior to prospect theory is that the utility 
when you think of like utility and wealth, that utility is a function of a level of wealth. And it's a concave function, meaning that there's diminishing marginal utility of wealth. In other words, if you have a million dollars, you have some level of utility. If you have $10 million, you have some you know level of utility. But the difference in utility and happiness between 1 million and 10 million is more than it is from 10 million to 100 million. So you've got this concave function. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the general belief was that, you know, that investors experience loss aversion because of this diminishing utility function. And what Kahneman and Tversky basically postulated through a lot, well, they postulated and they did a lot of research and, and, and conducted experiments, is they said, actually, you know, it's not so much about a level of wealth. It's about gains and losses relative to a reference point. And so if you think about it, like a simple example makes sense. So, you know, re, you know the, the, the utility theory is traditionally thought, thought of would tell, would tell us that if you're worth $10 million and I'm worth $10 million, we both have an equal level of utility. We're both equally content. But that kind of doesn't make sense, right? Because if, I, if yesterday I was worth a billion and I made an incredibly stupid investment and now I'm only worth $10 million, and yesterday you were worth 500,000 and you made an incredibly smart investment and now you're worth 10 million. The idea that somehow we're both equally content is insane, right? It's about gains and losses relative to a reference point. And so what Kahneman and Tversky with prospect theory, that's basically what they said. And that what they said was, is that you have a concave utility function in the domain of gains. In other words, as you, you know, your reference point is your wealth today. As you get more wealth, you know, that gain function looks like this. So your, your, your utility is, is diminishing, but it's a convex utility function in the domain of losses and it's a steeper curve. So in other words, the, you know, for a hundred dollar gain, the amount of contentment we get is less than the amount of uh, utility we lose for a hundred dollar loss. And so what this means is, and if you think about, I'm going to kind of switch over and talk about as Wafta Motor, gives a great example of this at work and he uses the game show, let's make a deal as an example. And in that game show, you've got, you know, a scenario where there's like two briefcases and one has a million in it, one has nothing. And I'm going to give you an amount that you can either take the gamble and open a a suitcase, or you can take the guaranteed amount. And if you were completely risk neutral, you know, you would say, look, I will take, you know, no less than 500,000 because that's my expected value. That would be risk neutral. But if you ask most people, most people will take an amount far less than that. They might say, look, if you Give me 400,000, I will take that. Now, that doesn't make sense, right? Because your expected value is 500,000. But people are willing to take a lower amount because they are risk averse. But that's in this, the domain of a gain. What Kahneman and Tversky found out is if you take the exact same scenario, but you rephrase it as a loss. In other words, you know, you can, I can guarantee you a loss of 500,000 today, or you can gamble and you can either, you know, open a suitcase and lose 1 million or open a suitcase and lose zero. What they find is when framed as a loss, people are actually, uh, they're not risk averse. They're, they're oftentimes risk seeking. So people, you know, they exhibit risk seeking behavior in the domain of, of trying to avoid a loss and risk aversion in the domain of trying to, in terms of gains. And so this has profound implications on a lot of things in life. In our views, it has profound implications on security pricing. Because if you think about like basic, you know, the capital asset pricing model is essentially you know, rooted in basic utility theory. And I think there are a lot of mistakes with that, that, that this kind of gets into that discount rate portion of where mistakes get made. Because, you know, we would argue that the amount of risk aversion investors have over a given stock is a function of their reference point. So you really need to pay attention to things like 
volume turnover and, and where, you know, investors, you know, you know, if you think, if you think about the entire float of stock, if all the investors aren't sitting on big losses and they're just not selling because they're trying to avoid losses, they're actually risk seeking in that environment. And if you think about the risk premium that you should place on a stock in that environment, I would argue it should be lower because you have a different risk preference uh, among your investors. Whereas, you know, basic capital asset pricing and financial theory would tell you, you know, that, that risk is a function of the market risk premium and the beta on the stock, which is a function of how much volatility it adds to a diversified portfolio, all the stuff that you learn in business school. But, but I think prospect theory has profound implications on how markets actually work versus how, you know, academics say they should. And that's one area that we spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to find how we can exploit, you know, mistakes that are made in that regard. So not asking for a recommendation here, but maybe give an example of how you've seen this play out in a real world case scenario where you use the strategy, you, you leverage the algorithm and you actually pull the trigger on a specific name, stock, position, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think, well, 2020 was a great time because so, you know, when, when, when COVID hit, you know, the narrative, and one of the things that we talk a lot about is for, for bias to be systematic. I think one way that it really infects security markets is through narratives. And if you haven't read Narrative Economics by Bob Schiller, it's a great book, but I think one area where systematic bias happens is when, when very powerful narratives grip markets and they, you know, they apply it. The market takes it and applies the narrative to a whole group of stocks when, and oftentimes it's kind of the baby goes out with the bathwater kind of scenario. And so during COVID, you know, the whole market sold off. But if you look at any company that was smaller cap, had any amount of leverage and had any cyclicality, I think got beaten up a lot worse. And there was a company, uh, one of our biggest wins of that year was a company called MTS Systems, which the, the business has really two core businesses. They've got a business that does simulation and testing equipment and software for all kinds of different applications. So for steel that goes into buildings and bridges, they do rolling roads for F1 vehicles, basically equipment to, to take whatever you're building and, and put it through very rigorous tests and then software to analyze those tests. So testing and simulation business. And then they had a complimentary sensor business. Sensors that went into a variety of industrial products to help monitor uh, usage, uh, prevent, you know, things from breaking down before they actually broke down, et cetera. So they had these two business lines, very good business, cash generative. They had done a couple acquisitions prior to the pandemic. So they, had, they were carrying a bit of debt, but like nothing too crazy. And the stock, I mean, literally got woodshedded. It went, I mean, I think it traded down from pre-pandemic levels it was trading, you know, consistently at like 50, around 50 to 55 bucks. It's trading at like $14 overnight, like literally overnight. And so this is one where we, you know, it triggered our algorithm in terms of the speed of the deviation, which by the way, this was happening at a time when every other company was also tagging. So for this one to stand out, I think speaks volumes about how big the reaction was. And so, you know, in that instance, we went in and said, okay, well, this has every appearance of being something that's systematic. But we want to kind of confirm the, you know, the thesis. And so we go in and we really start researching the business and we do a lot of scuttlebutt research. We want to talk to people who use the product, distributors, you know, the kind of research you just can't get on the internet and read about. And so we spoke to a ton of distributors who actually sold the product and it became very apparent very quickly to us that this was a fantastic business, had a very loyal customer base, had a very loyal distributor base. And <clears throat> upon looking at, you know, the debt at the time, the debt, the publicly traded debt, showed no signs of distress. And so you had, you know, a yield to maturity on the debt at the time that was something like, if memory served, seven or 8%. And yet you were getting a free cash, a levered free cash flow yield north of 
So it was like, okay, well, some part of this capital structure is misphrased. You know, either the debt is not reflecting the risk or the equity is, is reflecting too much risk. And so it became very apparent to us that, that it was the equity that was mispriced. And so we were able to go in, um, take a sizable position. And within six months, the stock had completely mean reverted. It actually ended up getting bought out uh, by a competitor. Uh, at prices, I think it got bought out right around 50 bucks if memory serves. And so that's a great example of, you know, something where you had a, a narrative that was gripping markets, you know, essentially that, 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 that revenues were going to go to zero that any company carrying any debt was going to get swallowed up by financial obligations. And even though the company might re- might survive the pandemic, the equity would not. And we took a look at it and said, no, it's wrong. It's just completely wrong. And I think it's a good example. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So this is evergreen content, right? But we are in a particularly interesting environment for investing with rates going up, worries about inflation, worries about stagflation. What are your best ideas right now? And again, I'm not asking for a recommendation, but are there certain sectors, areas, industries that you find more compelling as well as the vice versa of things that you're staying away from in today's world? So I think as we sit here today and today is April, what put us today? We're going to get the date here. It's April uh, 22nd. I think this is Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. It's Earth Day. That's right. We're here on Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. So I think this is probably one of the most difficult times to invest in equities if you're a long equity, long only, especially equity investor that I've seen in my career. So but that said, I think there are opportunities. And I, I would say, generally speaking, like I think our strategy now is to get more concentrated in our best ideas. And we want our best ideas to have very specific idiosyncratic catalysts. Catalysts that are not a function of Fed policy, that are not a function of inflation, and deep misunderstandings and deep undervaluation. So the kind of thing that like when I look at our all of our investments that were our core positions right now, I can say, look, in 12 months time, if our catalysts will happen and we have a high belief that they will, that this stock will be meaningfully higher than it is now, regardless of what happens to the macro. So those are the types of investments we look at. So it's not really any one industry or any, you know, it's not like, well, we're looking for, you know, everybody's like, oh, look, companies with pricing power because of inflation, yeah, you and everybody else. I mean, everybody's looking for the same shit, pardon my language. So I think you have to be unique in that sense and, and, and not just follow the herd into the types of companies that seem like they're going to be you know, resilient against a downturn, have pricing power. I mean, you're going to pay up for that. So we're finding more ideas in, in definitely smaller cap areas, um, special situations, companies with complex capital structures, uh, complex investment theses, but where we've done a ton of work on those. So when I say a ton of work, I mean like multiple calls with management, with competitors, really understanding all the levers that need to be pulled, where we have a very specific thesis that will, like I said, play out regardless of what happens with inflation, what happens with Fed policy, what happens with, you know, Ukraine, all the things that we're, we're dealing with right now. And so I think it's a time to really not, you know, there are times when you want to just own a lot of everything because everything's so cheap or, you know, there's some big opportunity. I don't think this is one of those times. I mean, generally speaking, I think the market's going to have a pretty tough six months ahead of it. But I, I think in that time, you will get a lot of good ideas will come out of it. But I just don't think we're there yet. So my advice and what we're doing, and I can talk about some specific specific ideas if you want, but you know we are heavily invested in our core ideas and you know paying attention to those catalysts, 
you know, like a hawk, if you will. Yeah, let's get into specifics if you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give, well, I'll talk about two. Mistras Group is a company we like a lot. Uh, it's a company we've, we started building a position during the pandemic and we continued building it throughout the company's core business. They do asset protection services. So, you know, think about a, a big part of their business is in the energy space. So pipelines, refineries going in, running refinery turnarounds, corrosion testing on pipelines, you know, the type of services that keep energy infrastructure, aging in energy infrastructure, especially from falling into disrepair. So most of, and they also have an aerospace business too, with a decent chunk in commercial. So you can see why this thing sold off during the pandemic, you know, exposure to energy, exposure to commercial aerospace, he wants to touch it, but companies can't go without this service. I mean, you can't run a refinery probably more than 12 months, much more than 12 months without running a turnaround. I mean, you know, legally you can't, where things become unsafe. So, you know, these are services that uh, have to happen regardless of the economic environment. Now, there is some cyclicality to them because refineries is an example. When oil prices are really high, or I'm sorry, when crack spreads are really high and they're really trying to, 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 you know, to really do a lot of refining, they might push the turnarounds off a little bit, but ultimately they have to happen. So that's a big part of their business. Uh, commercial aerospace, as I mentioned, corrosion testing on, on all the parts that go into keeping planes in the air. Obviously it was hurt during the pandemic, but starting to come back, we believe middle of this year. They've also got, during the pandemic, they've, they, they expanded into private, private space flight. So all the satellites that are going up for all the, the various reasons that we read about, um, you know, they do, uh, all kind of testing and, uh, maintenance on, on, on those parts. They've got a business right now that they're expanding into that's doing sensor. It's using an acoustic technology to do, uh, sensing, um, on, on, uh, windmills for wind farms. So if you look at these big blades that go on a wind farm or one of these wind turbines, one of them gets a small crack in it and the blade breaks. It's like $200,000 to replace a blade or something like that. So they have a technology they're expanding into that basically allows to monitor all that. And so there's a lot of the business. I mean, you know, I think the market looks at it and sees oil and gas. They don't like, they see commercial aerospace. They don't like, and they've, the, the company here again, it's small cap and had some acquisitions. Is it very much like MTS systems? That's some acquisitions prior to the crisis. So they're kind of delevering right now. Uh, but we believe that they're going to get the leverage down to what they believe is an acceptable level by the end of the year. And we think they can engage in share repurchases. In the meantime, you know, you're buying this at well over a 20% free cash flow yield. We think that it's a tremendous value. Stocks trading, I think around six bucks. We get to a, a $12 valuation without breaking a sweat. So that's a company I look at and I say, look, commercial aerospace is, is you know, we've done a lot of legwork on this too. We think by the middle of this year, that business will really start bouncing back. Oil and gas is already coming back. Uh, we think that the overhang on the stock has been the leverage. I think they're going to get that down to an acceptable level towards the end of the year. And if they can start doing a buyback, I, I see no reason why in a year from now, this thing's not trading back to 12, 13 bucks, something like that. And you get a double. Uh, in the meantime, I think the risk of permanent capital impairment at these levels, um, very low. So that's, that's one. I'll pause there if you have any questions, because the, the next idea is even, it's a little bit more complicated that I can, I can get into. Let's get into it, man. Okay. So the, the second idea is a company called Acacia Research, uh, a company that we, so Acacia, their traditional business, and if there's any value investors that, that are listening, they might be rolling their eyes because this thing was a value trap forever. You know, you go back four or five years. I mean, I, it was pitched at a lot of conferences and people would always laugh, oh, another Acacia pitch. And there- Can you explain what a value trap is for you? Yeah. Yeah. So a value trap is a company that ostensibly looks cheap, but it's cheap for a reason. Right. So you're in there buying it because you believe, oh my gosh, this thing, you know, 
look out, look at the cash, look at the cash save on the balance sheet. They've got no debt. It's trading at below cash or, you know, it's in, you have some cheap thesis, but maybe the business is eroding really rapidly, or maybe you have a really, you know, just a terrible management team in terms of capital allocation and whatever value that you think exists is, you know, eroding so quickly that the bargain you think you're getting is, a you know, is an illusion essentially. And, and you end up buying something that you think is super cheap and you get trapped into this, you know, uh, kind of roach motel that just loses money and you can't get out of because, you know, if it stocks, not that liquid, it's a whole painful thing. You never want to have to deal with. That's a value trap. <laughs> okay. And yeah, I, I think any, any value investor, myself included, uh, is at points in their life where they've got stuck in something like that. Typically, you know, I could tell you, I could tell you a story about my favorite one later, maybe, but, um, you know, you learn pretty quickly if you've been in one, you know, when you're looking at a value oriented investment, you know, the types of things you want to look at to make sure you avoid them. And so Acacia for the longest time, their, their core business, Back in the day, uh, they were a patent troll, right? And so, you know, basically what's a patent troll? You know, it's, it's, it's a company that goes up and helps other companies enforce patents. So maybe you're a technology company and you've got various patents around some technology and other people are using it inappropriately. You know, I would come to you and I'd say, Brian, look, you know, you've got these 10 patents. You know, we have a team of lawyers. We know how this works. We're going to go out there and we're going to get royalty payments for you. And if they don't, we'll, we'll sue them and we'll get maybe we'll, we'll maybe get a lawsuit victory and we'll keep a percent of the profit. And you'd be like, great, look, I don't even know how to do any of that. I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm a tech guy, whatever. Go do it. And then Acacia would take a piece of the profit. So <clears throat> not a bad business. I think it, it was a better business back in the day. And then they had a lot of, it's almost like insurance, I think, where you get a, uh, a lot of uh, you know, capacity comes into the market. You have a lot of people buying up patents to enforce them so the market can get overbid. But, but historically, it wasn't a bad business. They you know, they would be a bit lumpy, right? You would go through years where you might burn cash and you'd have a big, like, you know, maybe a big lawsuit win. But the company never, you know, historically just never, it, it always been a value trap. They, they always had a lot of cash and uh, I didn't even follow it too closely back in the day, but there was a lot of concerns around capital allocation, I believe. Um, just lack of clarity on the cash flow stream. This thing always traded really cheap. No one ever wanted to touch it. Well, you had a management chain at Acacia uh, kind of prior to the pandemic. And then shortly after that, new management made a partnership with Starboard Value, Starboard being the hedge fund uh, run by Jeff Smith. And the, the partnership they created was basically to, to kind of to create a permanent financing vehicle for Acacia to go out and find undervalued companies that have bad capital allocation that they could partner with Starboard, use Starboard's resources, capital to find ideas, go out, buy them, improve the business, maybe sell parts of the business off, and and basically become almost a roll-up vehicle for all those. So kind of go back to the idea of a value trap. There are a lot of companies that if you could buy it and control the cash flows, they wouldn't be a value trap, right? If you could go out and buy the entire company, get rid of the bad capital allocation, maybe sell off divisions, and then just melt the ice cube. Because there's melting ice cubes. There's two types of melting ice cube businesses. There's the type where the ice cube is out on the sidewalk on a hot sunny day and it's melting rapidly. You want to avoid like the plague. But then there are businesses where the melting ice cube is kind of like a, it's a, it's an ice cube at the back of the freezer on the, the bag of peas and you let the freezer door open and it's slowly going to melt over time. So if you can find a slow melting ice cube and you can control the cash flows, you can make a ton of money in a dying business. The key is being able to control the cash flows. So the idea behind the Starboard Acacia Partnership was basically to create a public vehicle where they could go and do that, which I loved. Then the pandemic hit. Pandemic hits, and they were in a very unique position. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Neil Woodford. Uh, he's a British fund manager, hedge fund manager in the UK. I was living in Oxford at the time, finishing my MBA, when Woodford's fund 
got into trouble. And anyway, long story, I won't go into the details, but long story short, his fund had to get liquidated and Acacia, along with Starboard's backing, was able to come in during the depths of the pandemic and buy a private life science portfolio from the liquidation at pennies on the dollar. Uh, one of the companies that they got out of that, and this was when we first got involved in stock, was a company called Oxford Nanopore. And Oxford Nanopore is a company I, I, I knew decently well because I was living in Oxford at the time, but they had a, a technology for gene sequencing, essentially, that uses this Nanopore technology that we believe was very disruptive. Kind of the biggest competitor they had in the, in the space was a company called PacBio. I'm uh, sorry, not Pac. Well, PacBio is better, but the biggest competitor, I'm sorry, was Aluminum. And Aluminum is, you know, their sequencing machines might cost anywhere from, I mean, up to a million dollars and like, I don't know how, they're like the size of a refrigerator kind of thing. And they used a, a technology called short read sequencing. And it's, 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 it's very accurate, but it's very expensive. And Nanopore's technology used a device about the size of this marker. You can see that. And they did a long read technology and they could get, they weren't quite as accurate as Lumina, but for a thousand bucks, you could do really some great gene sequencing for all kinds of purposes. And the accuracy wasn't quite at the level to compete with Illumina in some markets like scientific re or like uh, drug research, but there are a lot of applications and Nanopore's growing rapidly and their technology is just getting better. So we looked at it as a disruptor. And so anyway, so they ended up getting a 6% position in Oxford Nanopore through this, of this life science portfolio, along with a lot of other interesting life science assets. And so we got involved in the stock uh, around that time because when COVID hit, you know, the stock sold at ridiculously cheap levels. And, you know, we basically did a classic sum of the parts analysis. And we said, look, you know, you've got this life science portfolio that we can go in and, and try to put a value on these assets. They had a few that were actually publicly traded. You'd get a public mark, but most of them were private. So you had to go in, really do your homework, value the life science portfolio. They had cash, they had the patent business, and then they had an extraordinarily complicated structure with Starboard because Starboard didn't invest directly into the company. They didn't have, uh, like they were putting money in an equity. Essentially what they were doing is they were putting money in through uh, essentially what amounted to convertible notes, but they also got a lot of warrants along with that. So you have a lot of potential dilution through these warrants that you had to account, you know, you had to calculate correctly. So you had a very complicated capital structure that I think a lot of people did not fully understand and still don't fully understand. And, and I would argue to this day, a lot of people over uh, worry about the dilution from the, the starboard warrants. But I, I won't get into that because that we could talk for an hour about that. But anyway, so you've got this company that's got, you know, on a net asset value basis is worth, you know, on, in our opinion, probably above seven bucks today trading it. It's like, I think it's at four forty four fifty. So you're getting a well below nav. But what we love about it is we love the partnership with Starboard and what they're trying to accomplish. And so going out and buying operating businesses where they can basically go in, control the cash flows, sell off losing parts of the business, melt the ice cube correctly. We think there's a ton of value to be made there. Uh, they recently made a bid you might've read about for Kohl's, the, the retailer, which a lot of people hate, but we sat down and did the LBO analysis on Kohl's and what that would mean to a case if they pulled it off. And we think that could send the stock up. I mean, if they pulled it off the way that we think that they can, if they were to do the deal, which is you know a big question mark now because other parties have gotten involved, we think it could be a 5X for Acacia stock. But the bottom line is, is we think it's a very complicated capital structure that most people don't understand. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of complexity. That's good for us. The management team we've gotten to know really well, spoke to many times, top quality management with Starboard, who we think 
the highest opinion of starboard, um, that partnership is extraordinarily powerful. And the idea of being able to go out and buy a melting ice cube, if that's the type of business, and, and I'm not saying that's all they're looking for, but, but finding businesses where, you know, they're small cap types of companies where you want to control the cash flows, being able to go in, do a deal like that and actually harvest those cash flows and roll them into future deals, I think has, especially with the team that they have and with the Starboard partnership, I think, I think basically this thing could become a compounder and you're getting at it a discount to liquidation value right now. That's how we look at it. Now, it'll take time for the thesis to play out because they've yet to do a deal other than the, the Whitford deal that I mentioned. So I think the, the market is definitely in show me mode on the company. But uh, it's one that we, um, you know, it's full disclosure, it's our largest position that we've done a ton of research on and that we are, are very comfortable with. And it's the type of situation where I think it just really sets itself up well for, you know, the type of biases that we, we talked about earlier. You know, there's a, there's, it's like a round robin of biases affecting this thing. So we like that one a lot too. So look, those are the two I'll pitch to you, uh, Acacia Research and Mistross, which actually are our two largest positions. So full disclosure. <laughs> I, I love the analysis. We're, we've gone almost 45 minutes here, but I, I do have one more just to kind of try to tie this up a little bit. Yeah. Biggest lessons learned being a public market investor using this strategy to date? Yeah, man. Okay. I could, we do a whole podcast on that. I think the biggest lesson that I've learned as much as I am, you know, a believer in active management, um, markets are a lot more efficient than I think a lot of active managers realize. I think it, it, it used to be when I first got started that it was like, you know, I, I, I think markets are just inefficient all the time and there's all these opportunities. And, and maybe 20 years ago, there were, I mean, I think markets, have, maybe 20, even 30 years ago, there was a lot of inefficiency. Today, with the number of people looking at stocks, the number of, of, of sophisticated investors that exist, the technology that exists, markets, they get it right a lot more often than they get it wrong. And so if you're going to take a, a contrarian bet, you really need to start from the perspective of, okay, the market is most likely right and I need to disprove that. And so I think what I've learned is to be very critical of our own views um, and to, to, to not take the market's judgment lightly. And so I think the biggest lesson is I start out most investment theses from a bearish perspective. And I have to almost disprove the bearish thesis for me to get to get comfortable. So to not be overly optimistic that, you know, that the, the market's just throwing out great, you know, great opportunities all the time. I think there are certain environments where the market does. March of 2020 was amazing. But most of the time, the market gets most things, you know, right, I think. And so to, to really go in and try to make a, uh, to have a variant perception on an idea, you really need to go in with the perspective, perspective of, you know, you need to be disproving the market's beliefs and tr trying to really understand the root source of the bias, the, the why the mispricing exists. A lot of investors try to find great businesses. I want to find situations that I am very confident that the market has made a systematic mistake. And I think that's our starting point. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's the biggest lesson I've learned. So really focus on the nature of why the opportunity exists and then constantly try to disprove it. And you'll do better research, by the way, I think. If you're constantly trying to disprove something. Jeff, I want to thank you for the time. This has been awesome. Ryan, absolutely. Yeah, it's great to see you. If people are interested in learning more about the firm, 
the work you're doing or just connect with you in general, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. So um, our website, thorpeabbotscapital.com, maybe we could put the link into the, the yeah. thread below. Well, uh, it's a great way. And if you email me, it's just Jeff, J-E-F-F at thorpeabbotscapital.com. And we are, I'm actually in the process of uploading, um, we're actually finishing up our, our annual audit and then I'm going to do the annual letter. And then I'm going to take all the letters I've done since the fund launched in 2019. I'm going to put them all up on the website. Legally, if you want to read the letters, you have to send me an email, it's the whole thing. But like we, we will have, and there's a lot of information on the website already, but we will have our letters up there, which, which talk a lot about, uh, our, our philosophy in detail and then specific investments and in, in our results as well. Awesome. Jeff, go ahead. Best of luck moving forward, especially with those two ideas you have and, uh, good luck operating in this market. It's tricky, but, uh, appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.